All right, what is going on, guys? It is time for another episode of the Chasing Waypoints podcast. And this time around, we are episode number 84. And we have got another in the bivouac this time around. You guys saw the title. You know who it is. We're going to be talking to him here shortly. Just going to get him the link here in a few minutes. But how's everybody doing? Right? It's September. We're getting to rally month. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, last week's episode with the Kota Rally Preview. Had a lot of fun talking to those guys, and man, are they getting ready. It is Sunday, 10 a.m., and it is starting to heat up in Montrose, Colorado, with the first day of the Kotal Rally starting tomorrow. So absolutely excited to see how that progresses and what is going to be happening. I think it's going to be a really fun time. We'll see, you know? Lots of challenges, lots of stuff. Try and get, uh, maybe get a special... uh, guest appearance maybe in between episodes get uh mo hard on here he was out uh, verifying the stages for the rally so it'd be really interesting to talk to him about it and how it's going Uh, i'm looking forward to getting some news from them and sharing that with all of you guys so make sure you're tuned into all the socials chasing waypoints on instagram and also chasing waypoints on facebook oh we even got a youtube channel haven't done a lot with it lately but uh Coming soon. Actually, let's talk a little bit about that. We're going to be doing, I'm going to go back and revisit. We've got a ton of people that have been reaching out, talking about, you know, hey, I'm looking to get into rally. What's the next best thing? What, you know, what what do I need to do? How do I get going? Where's the rally schools and all of that stuff? Uh, I've been putting together some information, getting some stuff together for you guys. And uh, we're going to be doing that on the next episode. So a little quick preview, episode 85, we're going to be talking. We're going to revisit the subject starting from zero let's get into rally so we're going to be talking a little bit about that you know some of the plans some of the things that are going on in the last couple of weeks i found a really bitchin setup uh to get uh some kind of a cap reader odo reader uh i'll be at low budget totally not professional grade but good enough to do the job and get people into rally and it's going to save uh save you some money that way once you get ready to step up and get into this addiction uh that we call rally raid or the the world of rally raid you'll be set up so i'm absolutely looking forward to that one talking a little bit about that with you guys because honestly that has been one of the biggest shows that we have done here i still go back and i look at the the top 10 shows and those shows are still ranked of some of the highest uh in this so that is out there people want to get into rally raid we're going to be that resource again for it so i'm looking forward to putting that episode together for you guys uh talking with them and then back in that episode We've got the beginning of Rally Month. That is right. October, right around the corner. First week of October, we're going to be starting it right with the Baja Rally 6-day. So going to be looking forward to that one. Going to be down there and meeting up with the guys, Mauricio, uh, Daniel, and, of course, Scotty Bloom. So absolutely looking forward to that. We're going to do a preview show with them as well so you guys can get some information on the rally and what is coming up. Man, we are getting hammered right now. It is coming. We've had a Hurricane K come up the coast. I saw this. I saw this a couple of years ago. I was with the organization when that happened. So I'm absolutely stoked to talk to them a little bit more about how they're going to be handling that and getting everything going. Oh, man, look at that. I missed the outro. The party just straight up cut off. That's horrible. Hmm. Maybe I should like automate it. So it kind of like, you know, starts fading on its own. And then now I don't have to do it. I don't know. 
eventually I'll get it. But anyway, so yeah, so that's, that is definitely the happening. I am looking forward to it. I'm talking to the guys, finding out a little bit more about what's been going on in the rally. What's going to be unique. This is really my first year where I've really, really been hands off, had not had really any exposure to the rally and what has been going on. I have been keeping up like you with the press releases from Baja rally and what's been coming our way, what they've been sending our way. And so I am absolutely excited to get a little bit more info on what is going to be happening at the rally. Again, that is the first week of October, October 2nd through the 8th. Uh, going to be down uh, based out of the San Quintin area. My understanding is we're headed south into Catavina for a few days. The racers will even make their way as far south as uh, L.A. Bay or Bahia de Los Angeles. So I'm looking forward to it. Find a little bit more. Get back down there. Get up with the rally family. Everybody that we've met over the years and talked to. I'm looking forward to being in the bivouac down there. Going to be doing some episodes. I'm really looking forward to you know just bringing you guys some coverage, some pictures, things like that. So it's going to be good. It is going to be a great time. So anyway, uh, today's episode, right? So we had our, our episode a few episodes ago. I hope you guys got a chance to check it out and sat down and took the time to get through it because we talked to all 10 American entrants into the 2023 Dakar. So Ricky Brabeck, uh, Skylar Howes, Mason Klein, the entire American Rally Originals team, as well as Ace Nielsen and Jacob Argybright. So that was a really fun episode. But in that episode, something came up, something we missed. And this was actually on uh, Skylar House. Skylar House was the one that brought it to our attention. And that is today's guest, Peter Vilcek, is actually running as an American for the Dakar uh, or at the Dakar this year. Uh, he's going to be flying the American flag, and this is going to be, uh, we're going to find out. He's he's done. He is no stranger to Dakar, no stranger to racing. So I'm looking forward to uh, finding out a little bit more about the game plans and what he's been doing and, and the experience that he's gained because he's definitely put the work in uh, at these rallies, at the Dakar rally, and knows a lot about it. So I'm hoping to get some more intel for you guys uh, about it and, and what he's going to be doing. Uh, and then the change, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I guess you can elect what country you ride for based on, I believe you have to be a citizen of both, maybe dual citizenship. So we're going to get to the bottom of it. We will find out what is happening on this. Uh, let me get, uh, get me get this going here. Invite friends to join again. We're using the anchor app. I know you guys have heard the commercials. Uh, there's the boring elevator music. Let's get rid of that. Uh, I know you guys have heard the commercial on there. I appreciate anybody that's done that. And again, I'm in there. I, I actually say if you're interested in in learning about, you know, more about it uh, and starting your own podcast, you think, you know, you want to share your experiences or something like that. Hit me up. I love helping it. Podcasts are one of those things that are just kind of starting to grow and grow and grow. You know, back when I was rambling on about a BMW versus a, a KTM, the 850 versus the 790, uh, never would I have thought that that would be nearing a thousand listens. Just that episode, the very first episode, no intros, no outros, just me rambling for like an hour. Uh, but here we are, you know, 84 episodes later, uh, 21,000 listens across the globe, 78 different countries. Uh, I'm it to me, I'm, I'm saying those numbers and it just feels like I'm, you know, recycling something but um or, or just regurgitate but it, it's crazy like i think about that and i'm like man that's that is really big and you know what it's all rally family people that have been on the show that have shared their their thoughts and and their experiences and stuff like that so it has been a hell of a ride uh still coming and we've got episode 100 that we're getting ready for we still haven't picked a location of where we're going to set up but the goal is to set up a bivouac have some stuff going on and definitely uh, have a lot of fun with the guys and, and, and just everybody hang out and kind of meet, meet and greet, 
talk rally, talk shop, do some rides, you know, whatever, just chill for the weekend, uh, and, and get to put, uh, names to faces and stuff like that. So that is the, that is the plan. All right. It is six o'clock on the dot. Let me get this over to Peter. Uh, we'll go this way. Then we'll go to that. I'm doing this all live, right? You know, fortune favors the brave. At least that's what they say. All right. Sent him the link. Let's jump back to the app. I'm going to keep an eye here, make sure to see when he jumps on. But yeah, so he, he's also on Instagram. If you guys uh, haven't followed us out, Wolfie Racing is his, uh, is his handle on Instagram. So I am looking forward to talking to him about it because I know him and Skyler were teammates on the Clemshi. I totally butchered that. So we'll, we'll, we'll look at some clarification from him. But uh, to find out a little bit more about him on that team and what he's been doing in his experience. Again, I mean, he, he's got all this stuff that we've seen. Uh, I've seen some posts where he's hanging out with Skyler House at the race, uh, Vegas to Reno and doing all these things. So I'm definitely curious to find out more about it. Um, as I'm talking about him, it looks like he uh, just jumped in. Peter, are you there? Yeah. Hey, Victor. How are you? Doing well yourself? Doing good. Doing good. Excellent. Thanks for contacting me and having me over tonight. Yeah, absolutely. And audio is perfect. Very, very good. So this came up uh, when we were doing our, you know, the, the when we thought that there was only, or when I thought there was only 10, en- uh, 10 entrants uh, from the American side headed into Dakar. But Skylar House shed some light. Yes. And he said, so you were entered this year for the 2023, or well, I should say next year, for next year's Dakar. Yes, I'm entered for 2023 Dakar and Saudi for original by Motul. Uh, got my letter like everybody else. Uh, I haven't made much public thing about it because I always believe it when you see your number. Nah. Uh, or with the red bag, without or with the red background. Uh, because in the past, I got a number and didn't have a red background and we had to fix it. So I will really be fully 100% excited when uh, when I see the number. Yeah. Well, yeah, I hear you. It's kind of like, okay, I, you know, it's almost like you want to pinch yourself. Is this a dream? Is this real? You know, we got, I got the letter. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, checking the boxes. So, uh, which, which brings up uh, something interesting. So you're no stranger to Dakar. I was, I was blown through your pictures on Instagram. What year is this for you? How many times have you been to the Dakar? So this will be my fifth year on the bike okay. and a sixth year because I did the one in, in the car, in okay. the Dakar Classic uh, in 2021. Okay. All right. So that was not this year's, but last year's. Uh, and and then before that, it's been all, all motorcycles. Yes. Nice. So how, I mean... You know, let, let's start somewhere, right? Let's go all the way back to the to the beginning. You, you know, tell me a little bit about getting into rally. How did that even happen? Also, all the way to beginning is, I guess, I'm, I'm 47 years old, and I moved to U.S. when I was 20. So I spent more time in on U.S. soil of my life than I spent in my home country, which uh, that's why the previous cars always were raised as a, as a check, hmm. I got into rally. Actually, I bought a dirt bike first dirt bike when I was like 36, 37. Hmm. And in 2013, in February, it was the old rider did the event in Parham, Nevada mm-hmm. called Taste of the Dakar. And 
at that time, me and two of my friends, we went cross country. I had a KTM 990. One of them had a GS and another one had a Tenere to check out this event because it was like, more if it's the taste of that car. So we, we rode there, got there. Uh, that was the year when Johnny Campbell was there with uh, one of the first Honda models of the rally bike. So I got to see the first rally bike. And after after that event, I was just like, man, this looks pretty awesome. Like, I, I want to try it. So in October 2013, it was like a, the first, I think it was a three-day Baja rally. It was one of the first rallies uh, kind of put up. So I signed up for that, entered that. It was a bunch of big guys like Ned Seuss was there. I think Cameron Steele, Quinn Cody. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the guys, they already ex- experienced rally and did Dakar uh, and stuff like that was there too. So it was really very eye-opening for me. Uh, I think where everything started changing for me because at the similar time when I started developing interest, one of my uh, really good friends from back home started racing like two RX rallies and started doing all the rallies with the hope to prepare him for Dakar. So he went to Dakar 2015 and me and one of my really good friends, we just flew there to cheer for him, to see him on the on the podium, because before that I only knew Dakar from being in a communist country, because it's like, because the Tatra and Lias, the trucks back in the day were winning, so communists let, let, that, let that go on TV and stuff like that. So I was like, man, I have a chance to go actually be, be behind the podium and to see the real, uh, real start of the Dakar. Obviously, it was in South America, but still, you know, it was it is still a Dakar. So we flew there, cheer for him. He ended up finishing. He ended up finishing as the second best rookie and did top twenty at his first Dakar. Uh, at the ten days or twelve days, what we had to spare, mm-hmm. uh, me and my friend rented two BMWs all the way in the bottom of Argentina, and we rode through the whole Patagonia and and Chile and stuff. So. But I think the breaking point was like being in the VIP section on the starting podium and like the Dakar videos were playing everything and the riders coming up, like something went changed inside me. And from that moment, I was like, man, I will give anything to try to race this, see if I'm even capable possibly doing it. So I thought it, you know, it will let get out of my system. But like even like three months after that, when I was already back in South Carolina, my friend was back home, all the, you know, jitters of, of the whole experience, but still was there. So I called him up. I was like, hey, uh, you know, obviously I'm total mediocre rider this, but like, would you maybe help me or test me out if I even, if it's even feasible for me to do it? He goes like, yeah, no problem. Like we're going to be training in Greece and, uh, in springtime, just flying here for a week and, and let's see. So I flew in there in the first two days. Like it was like 370K and, and 280K in, in, in the Greece mountains. So like I got a picture and I'm like totally destroyed, but I'm still freaking in it. So he goes like, yeah, you got a lot of work to do, but it's doable, whatever. And I was like, man, it's it's no way I can get ready in nine months 
mm-hmm. for the for this race. Like uh, I got a family, I own my own business, I got to work. I was like, I, I make you a deal. Like if you work with me for another year, I will I, I, I will go 2017. I want it. I just we just cannot rush it because I'm way too far from even you know possibly succeed first half. Mm-hmm. He was like he he wasn't too stoked hearing that, but he was like, yeah, no worries. So he went 2016. He had a huge crash, broke his pelvis and and couple ribs and stuff. So uh, that kind of uh, put it back on hold. But in the meanwhile, as he was training for 2016, mm-hmm. I was available to go with him to a lot of places. So I ra- raced Ceres Rally 2016. I did the Baja Rally in October uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, But prior to that, I I did plenty of races in 2015, like both Ceres rallies. I did the first Merzuga in October 2015, which was huge. So after when he got hurt, he couldn't train or do anything almost to the... I think first time he threw the leg over the bike was August 2016. So he literally only prepped himself for five months to be able to go back to 2017. Mm -hmm. And I was just collecting all these races because back in the day, they required pretty decent resume for you to even, you know, to get accepted. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but then they said, if you finish Merzuga 2016 again, we you will get accepted because like that was like there they made the Merzuga to be like a breaking point. Like whoever finished that race, it it, it will get. It. So I actually had my friend uh, from Slovakia, Svitko, who's who's a pretty good racer. He brought the bike there for me because at that time my body couldn't even drive yet and stuff mm-hmm. so he bought a bike there i flew there i raced merzuga finished sealed the deal ready for 2017 i did still a couple other rallies in 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 the meanwhile like baja rally in october and all that and went to my first dakar was 2017 that was the one we started in uruguay go to argentina and then bolivia and uh, and a finish in argentina again uh so that was uh that was the first one that was pretty rough i think i end up uh i think it's 68 or something like that but it, it it was tough it was a tough year so then then i did a 2018 and like i always had this uh friend of mine bill conger from charlotte who would help me like here because he was doing a bunch of rally and and he went to Dakar previously and had a bike failure early on. So I, I knew he had a, like one of those monkey on his back still with Dakar. I was like, hey, you know, Andre just built this good support vehicle. We can go. Let's race. So he goes like, yeah, man, uh, let's do it. So uh, we went. It was the 40th anniversary. That was the one that Mark Coma did. That was the 14-day Dakar also. It wasn't just the 12th day. And uh, uh, it was super good. Uh, we had a four riders actually in our tent. Uh, but only two of us finished. The 
owner Andre, he had a really bad crash on day three. He ended up being in coma for like induced coma for like twelve days or something like that. We had a first we had a first check female on our team. I think she ended up breaking her collarbone on like a day seven or eight. But me and my buddy Bill finished like he finished absolutely unharmed. I had a crash like three K before finish line the last day and end up breaking my leg and throwing my shoulder. But I still was able to climb on the bike with all the adrenaline and get it through finish line and get the bike to Park Fairman and, and finish it up. So so that was the, the 17. The 18 came and I was like, yeah, you know, like uh, that was only Peru. I was like, uh, no, 19. 19 came, that was only Peru. I was like, man, I don't know if I'm going to do it. And then uh, out of nowhere, Skylar and Garrett reached out there. Skylar won his entry, and uh, they didn't have really the team to go with. And I was like, yeah, let's, uh, it's a possibility. So they end up, uh, he's end up going with us, with Garrett. And because like they were from here, I was like, man, I kind of got to go because like, I don't want to just send them there. Like I know Andre speaks decent English, but like, it's like, you know, I want to be there when Scholar races and stuff like that. So we did the 2019. Obviously after that, Andre stopped racing. Like I don't think he will ride motorcycle uh, just only for fun, maybe, but like not not racing. So me and him always had this joke: like if we're gonna do last Dakar, it has to be Malamoto. Like you gotta end it like uh, the the traditional way. So I was like, you know what? Like I gotta stay true to that. So I went to Saudi for first year. And that's why I signed up for Malamoto there. Nice. And that, I mean, that's, yeah, I, I talk about an, a way, you know, to, to enter where you're going to finish at, right? And in the Malamoto class, one of the, or the toughest class, I would say, uh, in, in the history of the Dakar. I mean, that originally that's how it started, but it was, that's, I think, why they went with the original's name. Yes. Nice. And just some, just to, to clarify. So I know that the year that Garrett and Skyler uh, went with you guys, and so that's Andre. I, I'm guessing that's his last name on the bike on all of the bikes. I just don't know how to pronounce it. It's a Klimchiff. It's his last name. Klimchiff. Okay. Yeah. So he's yeah. he's the team owner, and it, it was it was basically the four of you guys. Yes. Okay. And and uh, the, the the Czech girl went again, and she did finish. So she was the first Czech female finish in Dakar too. So nice that that, that year when, when we all went. So yeah, uh, yeah, because Andre had all that already built. Like he knew he's not going to be racing, but he had the bikes, truck, everything. So mm-hmm. uh, he was uh, actually planning to do like a support thing, but then the the Dakar Classics came, an opportunity for him to get back to racing in the car came. Mm-hmm which is a little bit safer for him. Uh, you do have a roll cage and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So he scrapped the, the, the moto program and, uh, and uh, went full on with that. And that's why I went to race the car with him to navigate for him because I was like, you know, if this is what gets you back to racing, uh, I, I, he had to call me like eight times. I was like, man, like I have no interest in it, but like, <laughs> It's just like, you know, 
I, uh, some of my best and closest friends I met through riding motorcycles. Mm-hmm. And so, and always the, any motorcycle uh, adventure and stuff I had was nothing but awesome. So I was just like, if that helps you to get back, let's go. But like, then he wanted me to go last year. I was just like, no, I'm not going. It's no way. If I ever go back to that car, it's, it's on the bike. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 passion and the 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 true spirit of it is isn't. I mean, the vehicles, yes, you know, the big semis, yes, but uh, in the end, yeah, it's. I think it's all about the motorcycles. I mean, this is a motorcycle race to me. See, I don't get that excited about vehicles and big semis at all. Like, cause they uh, they when you're racing, mm-hmm. they are they are scary. Like for for like us, like uh, mid peg guys, or 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 you know, like still being true amateurs, like. Uh, I think the last Dakar, I think the I was very stoked because like for half of the days, the car, the top cars didn't catch me. Mm-hmm. But like the the top three to five cars, they catch all the way to like 50th place every day. They, they, they go fast. They start 30 minutes after last bike mm-hmm. and they, they are quick, you know, and like like in my first Dakar, I had two bad days. Mm-hmm. And uh, the couple first trucks get you. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't care. Oh, you, your buzzer goes off, and you better get out of the way. Like they, they, they go quick. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> it, and that's. I mean, I know they have. Uh, I think it was the then, or it may still be, is the Sentinel system where they they can basically page you to let you know that they're within proximity, but then. You know, it's like, do you do you turn around and figure it out? Do you stay the course? Do you move left? Do you move right? Is there an etiquette for that, or you just go by your gut and you just try? <laughs> you, 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 you you kind of know, hey, this is the main path. This is the race line. Mm-hmm. Just get off the race line. It's just yeah, uh, you know. But like a lot of times, like you know, if he's coming up with you and you're in the two four foot ruts of fesh fesh, you're not gonna get out at rut that easy. No. And I don't know if it, I don't know if that happened to Joey Evans from South Africa or somebody like I think it was one of the years I raced. Mm-hmm. He got out, but his bike stayed in the rut and he had a car or, or truck run it over. Ugh. And uh he ended up like finding another bike uh not too far. Somebody crashed out not too far, so he took a gas tank and rip all the parts he could off of it and finish. Like that guy has like uh, amazing story on that, but yes. So it's, uh, and I think that's what, what brings everybody, everyone back to Dakar. It's like the, is the ultimate challenge. You have to be resourceful, you know, like it's, uh, and I think it's more challenging for anybody who's not the, the S scale or, you know, being on the true amateur level, Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, obviously the, the 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 factory guys and top guys. Like, yeah, it's super challenging for them also. And then they are the one who opens and everything. But uh, they usually finish. Uh, you know, I think first Dakar, I was coming like three hours after the leader every day. And then last one, I think I cut it down to like hour, hour and a half. But still, every day you come. So over 12 days. I think I was 12 hours behind a winner, you know, so, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's the difference. It's like, those guys are absolute animals, but, yeah. uh, well, yeah, the, the ability to do what they do. I mean, it's, they've squared away 
I think in that class and what they run, you have to have, you have to be one, you have to be a very fast rider. You have to be very proficient and not ride really fast and expend the least amount of energy possible is, is there. And their riding ability allows them to do that, right? They're very natural, very, very flowy on the bike. Don't have to force anything, but then they have to save all of that for the navigation side of it. So it's like solving math problems while trying to do 90, you know, on a, on a closed course, right? Nobody listening at home. We don't want you guys to go try do this on a freeway, but there's that certain ability that they've just worked on for so long. I feel like. Yeah, they, they, they trained that and they, they have, you know, that's why they, the, you know, the best guys. And then that's why everybody looks up to them. doesn't matter if it's a, you know, if it's a fully factory guy, but it's a lot of fast guys there. Like they are still, you know, privateers mm-hmm. and they keep finishing, you know, in the top 10, or top, top, you know, in the last five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is, and, and all of this to kind of recap, all of this stemmed from going to the alt rider taste of Dakar in 2014. That kind of like gave me the, 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 taste of rally and i wanted to figure out what rally is yeah the, the main breaking point was to go and visit my friend in 2015 like mm-hmm. that's a difference like the terrain in saudi it's awesome it's a great place for racing mm-hmm. but like you have a starting ceremony it's like three thousand people when i went to uruguay and or, or when I went to 2015, when I went to witness the starting ceremony in Buenos Aires, it was 65,000 people in their main square. Like the, the South America lives and breathes any kind of motorsport. Doesn't matter if it's Formula One, if it's Dakar, if it's they, they love it. Like you will be leaving BVAC at 4.30 a.m. in Bolivia. It's rainy, crappy weather, cold, and you will have families with kids and Bolivian flags waving at you, cheering you on. Like, and that was mind blowing for me for being like nobody and total amateur and seeing all that. They look at you, dude, this guy is, is a racer. Yeah. You know, and that's what will always be missed in Saudi. It's not, uh, maybe if they will end it in Dubai, will be more spectators, but like Saudi doesn't have that. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're saying that and I'm trying to picture it and I'm getting goosebumps, you know, just imagining the amount of people in it. And it is, like you said, I mean, if you see any form of motorsport televised in South America, you know, or that's partaking or it's happening in South America and they're televising it to the world and you see the passion of the fans and everything going on, it's just absolutely crazy. Um, and I'm just trying to imagine, you know, you living that and getting to see that in person and 65,000 people, you know, there to see a bunch of guys that ride dirt bikes and follow these squiggly lines, you know, in the middle, yeah. <laughs> through the middle of nowhere. <laughs> they, they, they come for the cars and trucks that they, you know, they, they, they want to see all of it, but like, it's uh yeah, it's uh it's incredible. Like my first Dakar was 126. So just by the number, it tells you, you nobody. Mm-hmm. And like the, these people, like, obviously, you know, it's fence and you wait in on your turn and the, the, the this parent will reach me like a, two-year-old kid will want you to hold it and take a picture with his child. Like it's like, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, so my next question, which I think I already know the answer to is Saudi versus South America. 
South America is the place to be. You, or, I mean, you you would think, right? Uh, if if I take the whole spectrum, yes. Okay. The fans, the 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 terrain. Obviously, skip Bolivia. That's the, I I don't think you will find a anybody on your podcast who says like, "Hey, I love racing in Bolivia." It's always high altitude, always rainy. If if the stages ever got canceled because too much rain and everything was always in Bolivia, uh, so. Uh, uh, but Argentina, part of Peru. I never raced Chile. I think one time the Dakar went through Chile, and I heard from a lot of guys was amazing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So for for me, it was always, uh, and you know, you, you get obviously you don't get to see to the detail where you, you know, you can just ride there and like look at the scenery. But like the scenery, you see all all, all the time different. I think everything about it was much better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's you know, and I've I've heard it a few times, and a lot of it stemmed from the spectators and the culture and the fam- not not to say that Saudi Arabia and the places that they're at now have don't have any culture. It's just very different. But the number of fans, the the just the kind of general excitement in the in the ambient settings that you get or the ambience that you get is just way more energy way more of a buzz it seems like in south america versus where they're at now in saudi yes for the for the spectator view for sure terrain wise i think saudi has a great terrain Mm -hmm. uh the the dunes i think in uh in 2020 uh when they run them the opposite way and they have uh they changed the faces uh and they were super steep and stuff Mm -hmm. pretty much everybody not off guard but it was like eye-opener because nobody was used to the dunes like that they were up, they were not easy to read mm-hmm. like really really awesome from the from the top at the moment you come it's either go, it's gonna be like a giant four foot g out on the bottom of it or they're gonna be like super steep mm-hmm. so that was that was the only thing but other than that like they have uh amazing terrain but mm-hmm. the spectacular part is i don't think it will, it will ever get there same way i don't think it will never go back to south america these countries are broke mm-hmm. Argentina's broke bolivia was already broke at the time when we were there uh you know so i don't think that that will go uh go back there so i think it will stay in saudi for a while yeah yeah i can see that you know saudi maybe or maybe moving try and move back which would be interesting because you have the africa eco race that now basically runs the original Dakar route. So, uh, you know, yeah, that, that, that could be, could be interesting, but I, I agree. It was probably going to be there for a few years for sure. But spectator wise will be the same like Saudi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, it, yeah. It's that, not going to grow much. Yeah. So you will have maybe some spectators. Uh, I think they start in the Monte Carlo or something. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it will be interesting. Uh, I raced a lot of the parts of the Morocco and stuff like that. Never raced Mauritania and stuff like that. But uh, it will be interesting if they go back. Uh, it, were, it were the talks at the one time they will go like Saudi, Jordan, Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, and they already did like a buy our Jordan uh, for cars. But I don't think it will go that route. But like finished by Giza, by pyramids. Oh, yeah. That, 
that would be something. That would be amazing. Because, I mean, yeah, there is, I mean, that's to say, you know, in, in Riyadh and where the finish is now and, and just there are some very spectacular landscapes, but then there are more, there's more to be seen, you know, and I think that that would be, and, and the tourism, right? Because, I mean, it's still, you, you as the bigger production that the Dakar is, it still brings a lot of people from the outside, you know, in that are part of the organization or volunteers or, or, or just crew members even. So, yeah, they bring talent. It's like a small city, yeah. like, like uh, back in the day, they use some planes, but mainly semi trucks and buses in South America. Like, but in Saudi, they think they hire, I think it's three Boeing planes, and they move every day. They move the organization from BWAC to BWAC, and they move all, all the stuff. So, like, it's uh, it, 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 it's huge. Uh, how many people is in the BWAC and and how many portions of food and water and all that get get used? So uh, that's crazy. I understand why it's not easy just to go go there, but like uh, as much like as it's no fence in Saudi. If mm-hmm. they would just do Dakar only in Peru, like they did that one year, mm-hmm. might as well stay, stay in Saudi. That that the, the, the Dakar just in Peru. Mm-hmm. Well, we literally probably cover every kilometer of Peru in that race. Yeah, just going back and forth and over the tracks and back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe uh, Nathan Rafferty has a different view on it. He raced that one, uh, but uh, it just was literally. We went from one side on the one edge of Peru, then a little bit to the bottom and on the other side and back across the, like one, uh, one sand dune section we ran like two days almost like, so that wasn't as interesting as the previous ones. Like I think the, the one that Mark Coma did, that was uh, the 40th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was the 2018 and 2017. Those was pretty good routes. Mm-hmm. It would have been great to see it down there, but you know, it, it's moved on. <laughs> yeah, it's moved on. It's 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 yeah. next chapter. Yeah, exactly. It's it's reached its next. So, going. I mean, you've you've done all of these rallies, and you've done. Can you say? Um, I mean, is the Dakar your favorite, or are there others that you're that you're more fond of? Every rally has something different. Like I pretty much, uh, and a lot of my, I took a couple of my friends there. We did that. Uh, rally in greece used to call ceres rally now it's uh you know it's kind of like a hellas mm-hmm. rally mm-hmm. but it's more in the mountains a little bit more chill chill mm-hmm. i think like a lot of these little rallies in greece are amazing uh i really liked uh, merzuga because it was uh a lot of sandals a lot of pistas uh the closest race like i think and i think it's absolutely amazing race uh for us to do it's a sonora rally that one has uh pretty much all what you can think of mm-hmm. but the funny thing is as many of these you do and you think okay i will have an idea you know i did six day marzuga i did seven day saris i did this till you go the f- first dakar you have no idea the, the dakar by itself it's its own animal the amount of kilometers, the amount of liaisons, the the weather changes, like 
Then one year when we started in Europe, we went to Argentina, and we were crossing Andes. Like we went from almost sea level to 12 and a half or 14,000 feet with snow on the ground when we were crossing the ridge line of, of Andes. And you were leaving in the morning, it was 98 degrees, so nobody packed for code for that. So everybody got a little chilly, you know. So things like that, like, you know, that's, uh, I, I would say, it's so many beautiful rallies, mm-hmm. but none of them can, they can give you a rough idea and they, they definitely amazing preparation. Mm-hmm. They, they not even close to the car. Gotcha. It's, yeah, like you said, I mean, it's the, the terrains, everything that gets crossed and done and just, you know, I can see it. You know, you're, you don't really, I mean, in the Saudi, you're in the desert and you expect to be in the desert and that's just where you're going to be where it sounds like there, you know, and in South America, you really do truly get a whole blend of, of the different, you know, the different terrains, sand and mountains and rocks and rain and snow and, you know, all of it, which man, even more, you know, it, it kind of makes it, uh, I'm not going to say sad, but you know, it would have been awesome to continue to see it down there because of, you know, that. And then obviously the fans, yeah, but also the last year was very similar weather-wise. Seems like it's to what uh, what uh, the changes of temperatures been like. I think last year, just watching it, and we did like when you go up to area called Neom in in Saudi, mm-hmm. it was like uh, I think like thirty eight degrees at night when we slept. So it it did get cold there. Like I I did. Uh, was a couple cold days, and I think last year they guys have a lot of cold days and uh, some rainy days was unusual amount of the rain. So I wouldn't just say like, "Hey, Saudi's all sunny and nice." I think it's because it's such a big country; it still gives the the, the huge variety. But like, you know, in Bolivia, I was like cold and rainy for three days straight. So that that that's not in Saudi, like. Like, uh, I, uh, I, I haven't watched every day, but like I haven't raced stage in Saudi where it was raining for 70% of the day in Bolivia. That's normal. Yeah. Wow. So, eh, you know, like I said, each, each rally inversion, I mean, not to take anything away from it, but each one has its, has its kind of own, its own character. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and trust me, the organizers make sure they keep it the car. Like when people like, you know, sometimes you read these comments and stuff and obviously all these is just my opinions, but like they say like, oh yeah, Dakar lost his taste. It's like, no, it's still grueling and, 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 and brutal. Yeah. Like, like it always was. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you're never going to get away from it. And then this year, right. You know, the different rule changes uh, that they've gone through, uh, but then also lengthening it, right. It's going to be more racing, less liaison, but also two more days. This is kind of going back into more of a racing and not so much. Yeah. So we'll see. I'm 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 curious how they gonna how they gonna do all that. I hope they cut some liaisons off, but like they always have to be near big city mm-hmm. because they transport majority of by trucks and planes. And uh you know it's it's so much to move. So yeah, I hope they cut some of those liaisons out because it's uh it's a uh, long time on the saddle for for no reason. Yeah, uh, just commuting. <laughs> yeah, you just commuting like that will be like you go. I don't know. 
for for three uh, two hundred miles mm-hmm. just to the starter stage sometimes. So you get there and you already have two hundred miles, and then you start your race day. So it's like yeah. uh, that, that 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 hopefully will not be the case, but we'll see how it goes. But also, you know, being fourteen days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think every Dakar that had 14 days, it's always been like a one day cancel or, or stage shorten or stuff. So I don't know. We'll see. I hope it's all 14. Days. Yeah. No, it'll, yeah make it it'll, it'll definitely make it cha- more challenging. So, I mean, in, in getting ready for this year, right, you've already been there. You've already gone a few years. You've already been to Saudi. Uh, let's talk preparation. I mean, are you, you know, the, the workouts, the bikes, I mean, what, you know, what does that look like for you in preparing for the 23 Dakar? So luckily for me, and it's one of the other reasons why it's bringing me back, not just to be able to race as an American and pretty much thank all my friends and like people, they help me here to actually be like, Hey, you know, thanks for help. Let's, you know, let's put the USA flag next to my name and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. If, uh, uh, I sold my business in February. Mm-hmm. My last day was April. So uh, I used to own the retail store, which is always gets super hectic around Christmas, like 20 days of Christmas is absolute hell. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually very curious how, what mindset I can bring to Dakar. Like we actually not having working 12, 14 hours a day, to 20 days prior to Dakar and then get on the plane and fly and go, go race. So, uh, other than that, you know, like I'm super thankful for like a lot of my riding friends I made, uh, through this time of, uh, time of the short, like what, six, seven years of r- r- racing dirt bikes. Like the, the time I just spent with Skylar was absolutely unbelievable. Like I never really rode bike in Utah and some of the, yeah, I've been around Paramf and, and Dumont and stuff like that, but like all those riding areas, absolutely mind blowing. And, uh, so I'm just, you know, try to work on my fitness, uh, riding as much as I can, you know, it's, uh, and just be as prep as I can be. Like, I think this, this year I, I can pre- prep myself the best, but obviously, you know, the age, Age and recovery start becoming a, you know, factor. You don't bond, the body doesn't bounce back as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's, I mean, not, not saying I'm old, but it's just like, you know, if you hammer out gym at the morning, then you go uh, ride the dirt bike. Even if you just go to the motocross track or whatever, you hammer up a couple hours of the dirt bike and stuff. The next morning you feel it, you know, so mm-hmm. it's uh and, and started doing it again. So, yeah, I'm just curious how, how it's all going to be. And uh, my best result, actually, surprisingly, out of all the Dakars was when I was racing Malamoto. So I'm uh, I'm interested to see if I can at least duplicate it or ma- make it better. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the competition is yourself. And, and then finish, I mean, right, that's, you know, first and foremost. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the thing. Like, it's... Uh, Every year where, where we started, and I know like it was like a big debate in, in the in the previous podcast, how many guys actually starting. Mm-hmm. Every time, like w- w- they there will be number like one sixty two or something like that, but they always skip the number. I don't think anybody ever has number thirteen and and things like that. Maybe I'm wrong, but like a lot every time when I look at like there will be like sixty four, 
and then it go to 66 or sometimes. So I think on average, it's always about 150 guys started. Mm-hmm. But like, it really never, I never really didn't, what's the interest, how many, like my, my goal is to know how many finished and me be, me try to be one of them. Because like even you know if, even if 160 guys starts it's fine. If only I think my first Dakar it's like uh, was like 162 numbers and and I think the only 86 or 92 guys finish. So like pretty much like only 60 percent of the field finish. Mm-hmm. And if I'm in that in that 50 60 percent, I'm stoked. You know, so it's. Uh, that's kind of how I look at it, but uh, it's, I will be re- really sad if, if they start cutting the bikes down because I think the majority of the media, majority of the people they follow that car, they follow for motorcycles. Yeah. And uh, if if the case is they cutting the number down, I don't think it's uh, it's a good good move from it. I, I know they opened a whole new category, the Dakar Classic, and like. I think when we raced first 2021, I think it was like only like 40 cars and now it's like 140. Mm-hmm. So that creates a lot of headache and and it's uh, it uh, it allows a lot of these people with the with the previous gen, gen winning cars to enter and 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 relive the history. But that should have that should not be on the on the cost of of bikes because the bikes are always, I think, the number one. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, I agree with you. It would be sad because we've seen that in organizations here. Like, I mean, like, for instance, score in uh, down here in Baja, California is, is this kind of the same thing is that the trophy trucks have kind of taken over the show. And before the heroes of the motorcycles, um, you know, and, and those teams, it's just kind of diminished and safety has become a concern. And I can see where Dakar is concerned about safety. But, you know, now limiting the speed. Uh, on the bikes if if in fact they are reducing the number of entry of bikes um and then you know the vehicle number is increasing i've we've had this discussion and actually it was interesting we had andy kirker from the score organization uh on a while back when they were doing the pro moto rally setup that they were trying to do with score in talking about that and 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 some off-channel conversations that i had with some other people that had listened to the show the bike technology itself, right, has not really grown leaps and bounds like the cars have. The dirt bike is still the 21-inch front tire, the 18-inch rear tire, a 140, a 90-90 in the front. You know, it's still the same tires. There's still the same amount of suspension. You know, there's really nothing that's changed horsepower-wise. It's not like they've grown, you know, exponentially on it. There's There's a lot of things that at their core they've only really done to make them easier to ride, but not necessarily faster, you know? And meanwhile, in that same time frame, the vehicles are getting bigger tires, are getting more suspension, are getting horsepower. You know, they're getting all of these advantages, all of these things that are just shortening that gap and, and really is increasing the closing speed, right? How fast the lead vehicles will catch the last rider. So I'm curious to see, too, how they manage it. And I hope the answer for them is not, you know, moving away from the bikes because that's just I, I think it would be very off putting to a lot of people, you know, and, and to them. I mean, as a customer base, I think you have more guys that are ready to go on a motorcycle than you do in a vehicle. Yeah, probably for sure. But like now with the classic category, like I'm surprised how fast that category grew. Mm-hmm. Like it pretty much 
almost du- or double or almost triple the entries from the year, year one year to another. Mm-hmm. So it's a uh, um, that's a different fi- uh, different thing about that. The bikes, uh, I don't know. Like I think the regulating the speed. Obviously, everybody wants everybody get uh, get home after each stage and, and safety and everything. But like when they were racing the six nineties, bore out to seven ten back in the day. Mm-hmm. Those things were viciously fast. Yeah. Like it's like uh, make a make the road book more difficult to slow them down through terrain or or something like that like it's uh and even false sadly to say like the 2020 we had two casualties i i don't know how fast uh concavish was going but like where where my friend uh pretty much not passed away but like they resuscitated him he maybe were were going 80 kilometers an hour max Mm -hmm. you know so that's not gonna. I think the putting restrictor on the bikes not gonna slow the guys down. <laughs> like, no. quite honestly, I don't think the factory guys are wired to be slowed down. Those guys are pro racers, mm-hmm. and they go there with the mind they want to win. Yeah, and they're gonna ride the bike as fast through the sections and the terrain it allows them to. And, and so you put a restrictor on the bike for 160, but then it's going to be a camel grass section for 30K. The guy's still going to push, you know, somebody will go 60K there. They're going to go 80. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's, it, it, I think it's going to actually make push the guys in the push the guys to the limit in the areas where, you know, they will maybe go a little slower. But because they cannot open up on the plateaus and and wider roads, they're gonna try to make up time there. Yeah, you know, I think the silliest rules was the one where they took the tires away from the guys. I thought that was the most dangerous thing they can do mm-hmm. for 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 them as a, as a as a pro racers. Yeah. Because like cars can change what six tires every every, every day. Like you get three flats, two flats. You get new ones, then you start with the new ones, mm-hmm. and then you limit guys to what one set of tires per two days. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I wasn't a big fan of that, and that didn't last long either. So I'm glad because I think that that definitely put these guys more in danger than than any kind of speed. Yeah, and I and 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 I agree with you, and that was something that was you know, and briefly. You know the the running joke that I've I've brought up a couple of times, and even when uh, Ricky Brabeck was on, it was that you know that next is going to be two strokes and you know 150 cc. You know they're going to start limiting the ccs and making the bikes physically they just cannot go that fast, which then is only going to drive the factories to make the bike go that much faster because then it becomes the horsepower race. You know who can get the most out of it, and you know maybe we can make our engine you know increase it 2000 rpms on the rev limiter but that means we get some of our top speed back and only it only increases the the area in which I don't know how you say it. the factory rider or to me a racer uh, a, a guy that's pro level factory is always pushing to go fast and now it's going to push them to push to go faster in just past that comfort zone 
And that's the, I think that's what becomes the problem is these guys are used to going fast and they know exactly what the bike will do, but now it will help. It will start to push them just a little bit further. If I stay in it just a little bit longer, if I, you know, they really start pushing for that edge, you know, not to say that they're not now, but I think there will be a noted difference if they continue on the path of trying to limit the bike speed line, limit the, um, maybe if they go horsepower, if they go, I mean, there, there's, I think a lot of things that now granted these organizations are supposed to be looking far ahead and, and have some kind of a game plan. But, you know, like you said, the tire choice is kind of like, well, what was the thought behind that? Because that feels more like a safety issue than it did achieve anything because, Again, same thing, talking to Rick, Ricky, was, Ricky Brabeck was not worried about the tire rule because he rides in a manner where he doesn't chew up tires. So not really a deal for him. So no, he, but it, it, you can still slash the sidewall over the rock. Oh, yeah. And not have an option to, or you you lose it. Like, yeah, uh, I'm sure some guys didn't bother the, the rules, but like, what happened to if it's not broken, don't fix it? Look how many people died in Formula One. Mm-hmm. Do they regulate the speed? No, they still go 300 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Well, they make, no, they make the cars narrower to try and slow them down. Yeah. And they made them, <laughs> but they, they never touch the top speed. Top speed is still there. Yeah. Yes. Safety improved. They have uh, halos. They have mm-hmm. uh, better, speed. they have all kinds of stuff. I'm not saying they didn't, Yeah. but uh, I don't think it's uh and I don't think they can go lesser CCs. Like you have the engine has to last you 14 days. Mm-hmm. Like I don't see the 300 motor getting run the way it would last, you know, like in the moment you, I don't know what's the penalty for engine, if it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes or something like that. But like, you know, that's uh, nobody's going to want to take these penalties and stuff that that could uh, look what's the difference between the top five guys mm-hmm. if you lose the engine it's like you out of the you out of the chance to win it and all these guys like that doesn't matter if it's ricky skyler uh matthias toby they go there to win mm-hmm. they not go there like uh, like me see if i get a better result or 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 if i uh, like f- want to finish and stuff these guys go there to be a next Dakar winner and br- bring that uh, Bedouin trophy home. That's that's only what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I admire that, but like, you know, I think they comfortable go 180 on the, on the, on the long straightaway where it's no cautions. Let them go 180. Yeah. Well, like, I, I agree. You know, last year what they had, they had an issue with one of the courses that was a bit too rough and a lot of people decided that, you know what, we're, this is too rough. It's too much. And slow down. That, exactly my thought. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Okay. First of all, is it any of the top 10 guys that are riding like that? No. So let them ride the way they ride and, and then just back it down. The most dangerous rider is the one that's riding in over their head. And so if you, as a culture in motorsport and dirt bike race, I mean, that was, growing up when I rode anything or drove anything, race cars or anything, don't drive over your head. Don't ride over your head. You know, it was just, it was a very ingrained thing. So for me to hear that, it's like, okay, well, do you mean that if the terrain was flat, you would have outpaced your other two competitors? 
in front of you. And just because it's too rough, that's why it, you were, you felt you were at a disadvantage. And, and then that goes back to, you know, thinking, well, wait a minute, if you can do a hundred, they can do a hundred. So if the train was less rough or more rough, it doesn't matter. You're all going to be going faster collectively. It's not that one or the other is going to be faster than the other, unless you've got some top secret, you know, you're supposed to be in a 450 and it happens to be a 485, you know, that's a whole nother, you know, deal. So I, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I struggle with a lot of these things. It's like, are, are they really achieving what they want? And now they've set a precedent. Hey guys, if we all get together and complain at the gas stop that it's too rough, the organization will listen to us and they will cut a stage short. Meanwhile, you put out all these professional, all these guys up top and the guy that was at the bottom of the pack or maybe struggling or they got lucky and was behind gets stopped there. And they say, well, we're cutting the stage here. Well, now his result. Okay. Yeah. His result is, is maybe still the same, except for the fact that he just rode half the distance that the pro guys did. And in the Dakar, half the distance is a big deal. Yeah, it, it is. And it's like the, the, but they not always listen to you. Mm-hmm. Like I remember like the, all the guys were protesting. They don't want to cars go first. And when they let cars go first, I think that's one of the most unsafe things they can do to these top guys because the rocks they will see, mm-hmm. they covered because the, 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 the sand and the cars pushes them down, but your front wheel will find it. Mm-hmm. So till, uh, and they still didn't, didn't cancel the stage or change it. And, uh, that, that, in my eyes, that's the most dangerous things they can do if they let cars go before bikes. Gotcha. Like for, for us, like the even if they just wanted to have it to spice it up or wanted to get cars ahead, mm-hmm. don't do it to top twenty five guys. You know, like yeah, look, do it to us to bookies. Let top twenty five guys go and then let let top twenty cars go after them and then let us out mm-hmm. so the fast people don't. And and we would suffer, which probably will not be as fair neither. But like, don't do it to those pro guys because that's in my eyes, this is the most dangerous things. These guys starting off the cars, it's 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 absolutely unsafe. Yeah, yeah. That you know, there would be that's an interesting point. You know, what would happen if they changed the starting order in a way where? Okay, the the pro level riders, you know, right riders in this class from here to here are going to be allowed to go first and then you're going to have the faster cars behind them knowing that they're they're the difference in speed the closing speed between the two is not as the difference is not as big right if you have you know the the reason the cars penetrate so far into the motorcycle field is because the field that they're cutting into are guys that average maybe their average kilometer per hour is you know, 45 kilometers an hour, right? Just to, just to throw out a number or 60 kilometers an hour, that's their average pace. But yet the car, the lead cars are at 80 and 90 kilometers an hour, a hundred kilometers an hour average pace where the top bikes are 90, 80, you know, there's a bigger, they get more in that half hour space than than you would do with with some of the, the the slower riders in the group, right? Or the 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 guys that are there to to get to the finish. There's a difference between the guys that are there to get to the finish and the guys that are there to win. 
Oh, 100%. So, you know, there could be some separation there. There could be, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there, there's a bunch of things that the organization can do, and we just cross our fingers, right, that that they're picking the right thing. Um, I mean... I think everything's fine, like, with it. Like, I think the reason why they let the all bikes go is because helicopters and stuff, uh, you know, uh, so they wanted to get it all out of the way first. But, you know, that, that was my point. I'm not, I'm not necessarily... Uh, try to be advocate to break it up. I'm just saying, like, do not let, let the cars go before the guys. That's yeah. that's uh, that's the thing. And if you wanted to, for sure, that was my solution. Just break the field for the one day. But other than that, I think the bikes needs to go first because the amount of helicopters and stuff. It's uh, and you know, it's uh, when you get back. You still have, you know, if you do Malay Moto, you still have a lot of work to do and, and, you know, you need a time to recover and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, the cars coming back later, they have much more lights and stuff like that. Like if they, if they push bikes back, some of the guys will be maybe finishing the stage in dark and the, the rally bike doesn't have enough lights, mm-hmm. you know, safely navigate, navigate the stage in dark. Yeah. So, so I don't want to. Mm-hmm affect any of that i was just want to point it out like whatever they try to do to protect guys that the moment they send the cars first it's they pretty much just took everything away yeah no and i and i agree with that you know and something that's interesting if if they are in fact removing uh, or limiting the entrance of the motorcycles if they kept the same starting pace and then said well traditionally if they would normally let in uh 150 motorcycles and they only let in, right, these are just hypothetical numbers, right? If they normally would let in 150 and now they're only letting in 100, well, now they bought themselves 50 minutes or 50 bikes worth of 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 time to launch them. So in theory, you could extend the time between the last motorcycle and the first vehicle. If, yes. If, in fact, they limited it. So I hope maybe that's what they're getting at. Maybe that's what they're doing. Hopefully they don't keep that same half hour and then just, you know, okay, we're good. We're just shortening up the whole progress. You know, hopefully that's what they're what they're after and, and maybe do. So I don't know. We will find, we will find out in four months. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's only a four, <laughs> four short months. Yeah. So, so moving on. So the electronic roadbook thing. What are you, you know, that's one of the things that they've been controlling and, and working on. What, how do you feel about electronic roadbooks versus paper? So I think paper, it's always like the soul of the rally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even for it takes you about hour and a half to two hours coloring. So for Male Moto, when we got the roadbooks in the morning and you don't have to color roadbook, it was huge. Uh, for doing it, uh, I think electronic roadbooks are gonna be fine, but they have to test them. They have to run them for a while. So this year will be paper again, mm-hmm. and I actually think that twenty twenty four might still be a paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they will be already start testing the thing. I don't know how they're gonna get around the glare mm-hmm. uh, on those roadbooks. It's uh, so we'll see how that goes and. I wonder how durable that go into be because even if you, you know, uh, crash over the handlebars, break your tower roadbook, you can still pull the piece of paper out and somewhat roll it or somewhat shove it somewhere. Even if you have to stop every uh, 
20, 30 K to move it. You, you, you have a still way how, how to figure it out. Mm-hmm. If you crash and break the screen on the electronic roadbook, you left with nothing. Mm-hmm. So you either lucky enough, you crash early enough. You can latch onto somebody and hope he's, uh, knows how to navigate. Who knows how to navigate and literally just be really close to his back tire. So he picks up all the cautions for you mm-hmm. because that's what's actually for me, the roadbook second most important thing is that they're mar- mar- the cautions mm-hmm. or you would least expect it. So, uh, stuff like that. So, uh, I'm not against one or the other. I think it's a, uh, it's a, uh, everything improves, right? Like back in the day, you had a huge satellite phone you carried in a briefcase. Now you have an iPhone 10 in your pocket. So everything evolves forward. So eventually I think electronic roadbooks will be the norm, but I think we need more time to design them, test them, and uh, and then they get put into use. Uh, but I think that's, that's just the way how everything goes forward. Plus, you know, it might be a little cheaper for a lot of people to get into it down the line. You know, you just buy one, one screen and you mount it on and it will do your auto. It will do your all the things like, you know, like right now, what do you have? Uh, you have one ra- rally. Com- What's the rally cost you? 400 bucks. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't even know. Then you have two uh, Erie tracks or whatever the, the repeaters on the top, I think they are 700 euros each or 700 euros together. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have, uh, 1,100 euros just in the, in the, in the three gauges and you still haven't purchased your roadbook yet. Yeah. So I think it, it will make a lot of the things much more simpler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and share, sharing files and sharing, uh, the roadbooks, like, you know, you just save it in, in, in the file and then you can send it to somebody or put it in the Dropbox and send somebody the link. Be like, hey, you want to go write this roadbook uh, tomorrow? Here is the file and the, the guy just downloaded it. You don't have to uh, print out 150 pages, cut them, tape them together and stuff like that, which a lot of it is kind of the, the, the fun part, especially if you do it with your, with your friends and, and hanging out. But like when you racing and stuff it's uh it saves you a time so it's uh yeah i, I don't know i'm you, not against it but I, I wanted to see how good it, it's gonna get before we start using it yeah before it's mandated and and you got to go that route and 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 you know i i agree with you i don't think paper will go away anytime soon uh especially with as many people that are kind of getting into it now for the recreational person that's doing it I think that the things like drive mode dashboard and uh, the the rally navigator app as well, you know, the, those uh, are going to be easier or they're going to provide a, a easier way for people to get into it because people have tablets laying around and yeah, they're not, you know, eh, you can't read them in direct sunlight, you know, but that's not the deal. It's not a competitive, you know, a competitive thing, but you know, there's that. And then, you know, I think you can get away. I mean, there's, you know, manual roadbook holders, you know, that they use like in these big adventure raid stuff, you know, and, and that are, can be had very inexpensively. And then you get the, the, the fun of, of going through a roadbook, you know, highlighting it, you know, making it yours, giving you a reminder. That's just part of the experience. Yes, for sure. So, so nice. So, Speaking of, you know, the roadbooks and, and new setups and things like that. So 
what what were some of the things that you learned like going into this like you know for for because we have a lot of listeners that are are curious about getting into rally and getting started and doing this thing so what what kind of things can you share with the people listening that that you know will may help on their journey of getting into rally yeah my thing is like some people are like truly natural about the reading the road book and they can just glance down and their brain picks up all the information. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I'm not one of them. A lot of times I have to look, you know, a few more times and things like that uh, down. And uh, a lot of times, like, you know, you, you look down for two seconds. If you go in fast enough, it could be, a, a, you know, difference between the hit and the rock or not. Mm-hmm. So I guess like train on, or, you know, the focus on the way how you absorb information as from what you read in, obviously, you know, for, for a lot of guys where they don't have to think how to control and, and, uh, uh, ride a dirt bike when mm-hmm. they do it as their pretty much first nature, mm-hmm. then they, they can glance at the road book much more, you know, so I, I would probably first, before you start any rally, I would like, uh, I would say the, become somewhat decent in riding a dirt bike. So you actually like can have a minute to look down and, and, and check things out and, 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 and stuff like that. And then just, uh, you know, uh, I'm still learning that. So it's very hard for me to say, but like, I always have to try to learn as soon as you can, the way how the person who made the road book saw it and how they think, not mm-hmm. what you think. Mm-hmm. Because you didn't make that road book. But if you, and this was one of the things Scholar told me and then stuff like, if you look at it from like above from Google Earth, how that intersection looks like or how that person saw it, you know, and that's what you try to get out of it, you know, because, uh, and I think that's that's like one of the most things. And also instead of, you know, uh, just uh, oh I, i'm wrong let's go back i have to uh, or you can also go forward just look at the other notes and if it's if the next tulips are all three you know go in a similar cap and you just already head in there eventually you might hit that main road or something like that you know it's a so everybody de- developing their own thing like i said i'm still uh learning how to get better at it it's it's in navigation, it's always room to improve. So, but you know, the, the worst mistake is not to, not to go do it. If you're going to sit home on the couch, you're never going to ride any rallies. So just for everybody to get out there and, and, and try it and do it and, and try to do it safely. I think it's a, it's, it's a first good step. Mm-hmm. And then like you develop your own, own way, you know, like, uh, like back in the day when people were marking roadbooks, like people will literally mark it by colors and they will know what each color means. And they just look down and they see the color. Oh, it's red. I'm supposed to go right here. You know, like it's, uh, so that's the, that's kind of my view on that. Mm-hmm. Just get out. First of all, get off the couch. You've yes. already, you've probably already heard enough episodes or know enough to, to just say, okay, time to do this. Uh, and then, and then from, like you said, as you know, is, is feel comfortable on a bike enough to where you can go and ride, you know, and in, in the terrain you're familiar with and, and then just, just start doing road books, start navigating them. And, and that's just the only way to do it. 
Yeah, that's pretty much, uh, you know, I think everybody started the same way. They got a roll of paper, they put it in the road book, mm-hmm. and let's see. You know, it's uh, just, you know, always just, I always was like big, big advocate, like, uh, you know, take somebody with you or, or, or make sure like you have a spot on or something like, especially if you go, uh, you know, some, somewhere re- remote or just put the road book in and be like, Oh, I'm freaking going right here. And then your bike breakdown and you crash or something. And, 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 you know, so always kind of remember like, Hey, the, the cell phone service is not going to be everywhere. So either do, do spot, use the Garmin or, or whatever, you know, to, and then, then just go out there and explore like, you know, it's, uh, and, and, and this is a perfect time to say, if you're wearing a spot device or any kind of Garmin or tracking device, please wear it on you and not on the motorcycle. <laughs> I don't know yeah. how many times I've seen that. I see people riding around with spot trackers or, or even the new like Garmin GPSs, which I kind of get, but you know, they have their, the same in reach feature, but now they have them on the bike mounted up in front. I'm like, that bike will travel. If you get knocked off the bike, the bike could go hundred feet in a straight line before it falls over. And if you're hurt, uh, that is going to be the longest hundred feet you've ever had to, you know, walk, crawl, stumble, whatever, roll to get to it. So yeah. So if you're listening to this and you have one of those devices, please make sure you have it on you and not on the bike. Yeah, for sure. I <laughs> agree. But if you have a friend or somebody you can drag with you, it's always the best way. Yeah. So always the buddy system. Yeah, because chances you both will crash in the same hole, not happening. (laughs) (laughs) One always happens to stop just in time to laugh. (laughs) Or or call for help. Or call for help. Yeah, well, well, (laughs) which comes first depends on the severity of the... (laughs) Exactly. Of said issue, (laughs) of said sequence of events. Nice. Well, cool. So... Um, what, uh, what, you know, what else? I mean, are you, are there any other things, any other rallies that you're planning on doing between now and then any other trainings, anything like that? Not, not any, any rallies. Uh, I'm planning to do, uh, some more training. I uh, haven't decided where, but I would like to go somewhere where it's, uh, where I can spend at least four or five days in the sand, um, you know, to get more used to it. Uh, uh, uh and just pretty much, <laughs> try to ride a rally bike from now on as much as I can, mm-hmm. not necessarily just with a road book, just try to get the, the, the seat time on, on, on the rally bike because they are a little bit different than like your 350 and 450, but it's uh, they incredible machines. So, mm-hmm. and you have, you have a couple of them now, right? Or what's, what's in the garage? Uh, 250, 350 and a rally bike. Okay. A little yes. bit of everything. Yes. Nice. So I, I, I've been uh, lucky. I have a couple of friends. Uh, they've been racing all the national Enduros. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one of my friends, he bought an RV. So he decided like, oh, this year I want to hit all the national Enduros. Only way you have to do bring your bike and, and food and hop in. I was like, really? I'm hopping in. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, Perfect. If, 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 I, if I can go and I can stay in the RV and stuff. So uh, that's, where the, that's where the Enduro bikes come in and a, and a rally bike. It's... Uh, that's uh i was uh fortunate enough uh one of my really good friend who helped me out last two dakars he bought it for me as a as a gift wow that was the one i finished 2020 with so he was like if you finish original by moto 
make sure you buy that bike. Wow. From Andre. So I was like, yeah, that's uh, so, you know, it's, uh, but they are incredible. Like that one has a lot of sentimental value, but like for me, I I look at the motorcycle as your tool. Mm -hmm. And then when the tool gets, you know, old enough, usually gets replaced. They are like just, you know, you, you ride them and then you either replace the motor or you have to replace the whole bike just to keep them fresh because, you know, that's a, that's how, what you train with. So mm-hmm. this one would never get replaced, but like the, all, all the previous, but like, I remember like my first dirt bike was like XR, XR 250 and I was so attached to it. Like, you know, like, because it was your first dirt bike, but then like when I had a third KTM, I was like, okay, well, she has 110 hours time to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so that, <laughs> You're old to me. You're dead to me. <laughs> yeah. On to the next. <laughs> Not necessarily like that, but like, <laughs> what are you gonna be having the motor apart for month, month, month and a half, not ride or whatever? By by the time you get all the parts and stuff to fix it, so yeah, uh, you know, I I do all the work on my bikes uh, myself, like till it has to get like a top end or bottom end or something like that. Uh, then I have a, a friend of my dad who helps me out with it a lot, but other than it, everything I do by myself, so I try to keep them fresh and run as long as possible. But then when I sell them, I also want to sell them in somewhat decent life left mm-hmm. to whoever gets it. So, yeah. uh, and so far has been the case. I haven't ever sold a bike to somebody who's not, who's been mad at me. At least I don't know about it. So <laughs> <laughs> at least you haven't heard about it. Yeah. Nice. So. Well, good. Well, I, I mean, there's, you got, uh, you, we've got four months. So you got some, got some training to do. I didn't say it then, but congratulations on the, uh, on the sale of the business. That's uh, I yeah. know that's huge and probably a lot off your plate. And, and like you said, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what it's like going into the Dakar in January, not finishing, you know, or, or finishing before in the month of December with, you know, hundreds of hours dedicated to the business. Now it's, you can dedicate all those hours to your training and, and the craft, before you go out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see how, how that all goes to, you know, eventually, you know, I will have to find a job next year. Some, somehow by selling the business, it wasn't like I'm going to full retirement, but, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm super stoked about it. Cause I think it's, uh, it's a lot of things I want to do and I'm still, you know, can be very active mm-hmm. and, uh, and I want to approach that. Like, you know, it's, uh, not just motorcycles, just even like riding mountain bikes and, and doing other things or go explore places, hike, you know, it's, uh, things like that. So, uh, yeah, still, still plenty of outdoors to get out too. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Just don't sit home. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just do it. Get out and do it. (laughs) Nice. Well, cool. Well, Peter, I really appreciate you taking the time with us today and then kind of sharing your journey with everybody. And, uh, we're definitely going to be in touch, keeping an eye on you for the Dakar. Yeah, thank you so much for thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Uh, I'm pretty sure everybody's you know in the same boat, training, prepping, and uh, hopefully we all made it uh, there for the start, and then uh, I'll I'll make it back. Peace. Absolutely. Yep. And then we'll uh, we'll we'll look for the uh, the official post with the number plate. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Excellent, sir. Well, again, thank you very much for, for coming on this show, and uh, and we will talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Sir. Thank you. Right. Good See ya. Good luck. Uh, bye. Bye-bye.
All right, guys, there you have it. That was Peter Vilchak hailing from North Carolina, I believe he is. He's back east, so I had to let him go, man. That's already, you know, it's getting a little later back there. But I'm excited. You know, I when Skyler brought it up that he was riding, and I had seen it, I had seen him in a lot of posts, you know, under the Wolfie racing thing and, and running around and doing all of this stuff. But I didn't know that the journey had just started. Right. I mean, a lot of people that we talked to is like riding dirt bikes, you know, for so many years, you know, well, I would say Dave Black, uh, couch Dakar, you know, in a similar boat, only, only just picked this up a couple, a couple of years ago, but there he is, you know, right. Going to the schools, riding, training, riding and training. And it's getting harder for us to tell, him apart from somebody that hasn't been riding or that's been riding for years. So he's really, really working on the craft, even though there's been a little recent get off and then some stuff. So wishing him a speedy recovery and all, um, and, and getting back on the bike. Cause there's some rallies to do. Um, but that's where I think that, you know, everybody that's here stateside and, and, and that kind of rallies together, um, and, and gets helps get other people out there. So, we're going to continue on that mission and, and making that happen. It was great hearing Peter's story and how he got started. And it was just something as simple as going to the Taste of Dakar. Not even really a road book event. It was just the kind of a motorcycle trade show kind of deal. And from there, it, it just grew. And so what are the things that we could be doing and, and what we could be uh, working on? I've got some plans. I've got some stuff. We've been talking about it for a while. It's really now coming to fruition. The first road books are almost done uh, for it. We're going to be doing some stuff similar to what you would have seen at the Taste of Dakar back then. Um, but the big thing is, is that there's a lot of adventure bikes out there, a lot of guys in the market. We're going to come up with a real simple way uh, to get a roadbook holder uh, and a real simple way to get a odometer cap reader uh, with just some basic things, right? And it's just a basic minimal cash outlay. I've already got a plan for you guys uh, that, that are going to want to participate in something like this that's going to help. Uh, with creating roadbooks, right? That's the next biggest hurdle. Okay, great. I've got all of this equipment. Now, what the hell do I do? Where do I get roadbooks from? Well, I've got a plan for that. I'm working on some stuff to show you guys how to do it. And it's actually very, very simple. Are they Dakar level professional grade, you know, in the middle of nowhere roadbooks? No. The idea is, is that this is just roadbook navigation. And the idea is, is that you don't know the particular journey that you're on, that you are on. But like we've said, and I hope you guys have taken it to heart, don't worry, it's going to make sense when you get there. Enjoy the ride. All right, that is a wrap for the Chasing Waypoints podcast this week. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you like what you heard. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a bunch of others. Also, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook under Chasing Waypoints, Instagram, Chasing Waypoints underscore official, and of course, the YouTube under Chasing Waypoints. Hope everybody has a good week. We will see you guys for the next episode. Remember, shiny side up, and don't forget to tag us. We want to see where you guys are riding and what you guys are up to. Have a great week. <laughs>